In Houston, I'm John Herder. It's Tuesday, the 28th day of November. Great as always to have you along, everybody. From the Experts is a virtual networking opportunity flow accelerator, helping leaders across industries connect very quickly in a brief, moderated, interactive show format. Yeah, like a TED Talk with interaction. If all goes well, your curiosity sparked, new ideas accelerate action, and you may have helped yourself or somebody else solve the problem, make a connection, reaching the opportunity faster. Folks, help me welcome guest expert Mudazar Zahir. Maz is an experienced tech leader transforming healthcare through digital innovation. As Chief Information Officer of the U.S. Oncology Network, he oversees a team that supports over 2,000 providers delivering care to millions of patients across 600-plus cancer centers nationwide. Maz is driving the organization's digital transformation, leveraging technology to enhance the patient experience and improve the joy of practice for the providers. Maz, all of our families are no strangers to the stressful journey that cancer and all patients face as they navigate the system to get the supporting care that they need. I'm so grateful that you have time and you're coming to share how you're addressing this. And I'm curious to see, well, what different insights today's group uh, has to bring to this problem. Mass, take it from here. Thanks, John. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this forum, and I'm really looking forward to the to the interaction, interactive conversation. Uh, I promise you, this is going to be uplifting. We're starting the holiday season, but I want to do want to start with something that is quite sombering, which is that. Uh, you know, for anyone who, including me, if, if you have a family member who's been diagnosed with cancer, uh, it is not a fun experience. You know, the, from the, the time you find out to the time it takes to make your first appointment with your oncologist to the first treatment plan to the first actual treatment care, and then eventual remission. It is a very stressful journey. And it's a journey that seems like, uh, it's almost like discovery that you are someone who's doing this for the first time. Um, it's not like there's a set template for how cancer gets treated. Uh, and that's reflected in, in the statistic as well. Like cancer patients are five times more likely to experience depression uh, and far likelier to, to consider or commit suicide. So why is that? Why, why is something that affects so many people in this country uh, not offer the same experience as what you, what you get when you walk into a hotel or into a retail store or a restaurant? Why isn't, why isn't that concierge service the same? Why isn't that experience the same? And that's what I really wanted to touch on today with you and, and hoping to, to really spark a conversation, get some ideas from you on what is it that we can do differently in the oncology space to improve the experience for our patients. Uh, as, as I look at this problem, I've been in this space now in the oncology space for about three years. Um, I, I firmly believe that there are a lot of industry agnostic experiences or solutions that can that can influence the cancer experience, the cancer treatment experience for patients. Um, 
uh, really not just not even just cancer, but healthcare in general, because healthcare in general has been slow to adopt technologies that have become mainstream in other other segments. Um, but when you look at cancer care, there are really two key stakeholders. One, there's the patient, of course, and we have to improve the patient's experience. Second, there is the provider, the doctor, and the care staff. And if we can improve their experience, then the joy of practicing medicine will kind of reflect through them and into their into how they interact with the patients. In other words, a happy doctor or a happy care team member is, is more likely to be happier with the patients and treat the patient better versus somebody who's stressed out. So looking at that 360 ecosystem of the patient and the provider, there are really four areas that I have been focusing on um, one, the patient engagement technologies. How do when a patient is diagnosed with cancer, how can we in, improve those initial engagements for the patient to reach a care team member? And then on on the provider side or the care team side, synchronization of care. How can we better synchronize the care between the patient and the various personas that are involved in their care, the doctor, the nurse, the radiation oncologist, the, the infusion team, the team, and so on and so forth, maybe the surgery team, uh, et cetera. And then for both of those personas, what are the foundational technologies that we can adopt to enable, enable this improved experience? Uh, those foundational technologies could be something around digitization from basic stuff like digitizing paper-based processes to something more advanced using AI, for example. And again, my the goal here for me is to really learn from you and uh, as to how are you using those technologies in other segments, other sectors, maybe even in, in your space in healthcare uh, to improve the patient experience. For me, in, in my role in, in the Houston Oncology Network, there are seven um, technologies that we are, are, I would say less technology, but solutions, holistic sol solutions that include technologies plus workflow redesign, et cetera, that we are focused on to, to improve the patient experience. One, starting with the most obvious, we, we are really focused on that first patient engagement through the patient portal or through maybe even something as basic as telephony, 90% of patient engagements right now are through the phone. When a patient finds out that they have cancer and they want to schedule an appointment, they're not going to a portal. They're going, they're picking up the phone and calling a practice, an oncology practice. And typically uh, in general, if you look at industry statistics, the wait times are anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour to two hours just to talk to somebody to schedule an appointment. It's not a good experience for someone who just found out they have cancer, right? And then once after post engagement, initial engagement, then the patient portal comes in. Uh, scheduling is really hard for oncology because it's not, oncology, uh, scheduling oncology is not the same as scheduling in primary care where you can go see your doctor for the flu. Scheduling in oncology typically involves a number of different things that have to be synchronized. You know, see the medical oncologist, go for imaging, go to pharmacy, then and so on and so forth. So you have to make sure that scheduling gets synchronized across all of those functions. Resource libraries are really important. 
when people find out they have cancer, you want to direct them to a trusted source of resource of, for information. Uh, what you don't want them doing is going to, uh, I don't know, chat GPT or, or Google and just doing some general searches on, hey, what, how do I, what's the right treatment for cancer X, cancer Y, right? Uh, so, and if you do all these three things, you engage with the patient, you help them schedule, you provide them some initial resources, all you've done is get them to the point where they can actually walk in the door. And once they walk into the door into a medical practice, you then have to um, provide them with the best experience possible. And the experience that we typically see in the healthcare setting is we greet them with a clipboard and, and a bunch of forms to fill out on paper. Clearly not something ideal, somebody who's already so stressed out. If they have to fill out form, let them do it from the comfort of their house somehow, mm -hmm. and then digitally ingest those forms. Uh, once you have the patient in oh. the door and you're now engaging with them and the oncologists are able to see them, how do you stay engaged with the patient? A lot of patients are starting to use, even though the oncology patient population is generally older, but more of them are not bringing their, their daughters, their sons, their grandkids with them as, uh, to support them through this journey. And they are avid social media users. How can we use social media to, to stay engaged with our patients? How can we use modern channels like email, secure messaging to stay, stay engaged with our patients? Um, Healthcare is a space that is highly regulated. Uh, we want to make sure that patients' privacy is respected and we want to make sure that their data is secured. So uh, HIPAA, PHI, PII, personal health information, private health information, private in, in, information, et cetera, is, is secured is a really important um, task for us as stewards of those patients' data. And then finally, beyond just pure messaging, what is it? That, what technology can we use to improve the patient experience? Everybody now has a smartphone by default, yet you don't see a lot of smart healthcare applications. Uh, you don't see a lot of smart utilization of smart healthcare devices. Everybody's got a Fitbit and everybody has an Apple Watch now, but are those devices actually being used actively to manage the care for those patients. There are a lot of vitals and a lot of other metrics that we can drive from those devices that can really influence uh, uh, how, how we care for those patients. So if a patient, for example, came for their first chemotherapy, we can, we can monitor their heart rate after they leave the treatment center to see if the chemotherapy has had an adverse effect, things like that. So anyway, there's, these are the seven areas that I am focused on in my role to see if I can make a, a difference in, in, in care for cancer patients that are, that are coming to our centers and we treat about 20% of all cancer patients in the United States. Uh, but I would really love to see what else can we do? What is it that we're doing better in other areas? I mentioned hospitality and I mentioned retail. Uh, and some of this has been influenced by that for me, right? Um, uh, but what is it that we're doing in other areas that can influence uh, cancer care? Right now, that was sort of my 10-minute 
spilled out into five minutes. I think it went five minutes over. So. Got it. Sorry, you got to unmute yourself. Thanks for the comments. And folks, uh, we've got uh, people from all industries here. Uh, what personal experience do you have or, or business experience to address uh, what Mass has just gone through? Do you have any questions specifically for Mass? Now's the time. So the way this works in the group discussion is I can call on you uh, because I already know a little bit about you and you can pass. Uh, so with that, you can also raise your hand if you have something in particular that you, and I see uh, Dr. Danino has his hand raised. Uh, Dr. Danino, why don't you proceed with your question? Sure. I, I've seen digitization spreading across the healthcare industry. I've worked in healthcare for many years and uh, actually both uh, as an employee and as a consultant in the last 15 years or so. And what I see with digitization is, uh, on one hand, there are very positive things that can be gained from it. On the other hand, in many cases, it makes the patient experience actually more negative. Uh, healthcare practice administrators, for example, are using it to uh, increase. The main thing is to increase throughput, boost RVUs, boost revenues, et cetera, and, uh, and making it more complicated for the patient uh, in order to gain access. Uh, in many cases, you book an appointment, a doctor wants to follow you post-treatment, wants to see you every six months. They ask you after the appointment uh, to pick a date and time six months from now, which is largely guesswork you do. And when the time comes closer and you realize you can't make that appointment, you go to rebook, they can't see you for another few months. How is that quality care? And that happens frequently in, in Houston, which is where, where I live. Uh, I see that uh, uh, that one of our largest healthcare systems in Houston, I'm not going to name them, who probably is responsible for about 30% or so of all, all visits in the Houston metro area, is very difficult uh, to book appointments. The other thing I see is every, I would say about 18, every 18 months to two years, uh, healthcare systems change. All of a sudden, they change EHR. They change their messaging systems, and all rather than just transfer the information from one to another, they put all that burden on the patient to fill everything out on their medical history once again, because they don't want to pay the cost of making that transition. It's very discouraging, I think, for the patient, and uh, and for older patients, you're shifting it not just to the patient. You're fishing. Uh, you're shifting that on to their family members. And the family members are having to do all that work on top of maybe raising kids and dealing with those kinds of schedules and working and everything else. So I can see all of the tremendous possibilities for digitization. But for some reason, I don't really feeling in many areas of healthcare that it's, that it's being realized. I'll stop mm -hmm. from there. I'd like your comments. Yeah, no, uh, all very, very valid observations. Uh, here's what I would say, right? Um, there are, there are things that we can do from a technology perspective. There are things that have to happen from a legal, regulatory, and compliance perspective that, that need to improve the experience. I'll give you an example. Uh, in our case, we have settled on an EMR that is designed specifically for oncology, and we have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in, in maturing that EMRs, EMR specifically for oncology. So we're not going to another EMR. But where 
as health systems switch EMRs, the reason the patient's data has not flowed is because of intentional information blocking by certain health systems. So fortunately for us, 21st Century Cures Act has now put in provisions where you're required to share the patient's data within five days. So I think that problem will hopefully go away. And that is uh, uh, something that was much needed in, in the U.S. Um, healthcare space. So that I'm really, really uh, glad that the 21st Century Cures Act was passed. And that was, um, and that will solve a big challenge for us. Um, in, in terms of the patient burden, the, uh, in terms of your observation around higher levels of digitization are also increasing the patient burden. I, I've seen that myself as well. So I mean, I, in my case, when I go to my doctor, I do get an appointment six months from now and I reschedule that appointment four times because it's just not realistic given my schedule to have a, an appointment confirmed for six months ahead of time, right? Um, the solution for that is there are two things. One, you have to have continuous engagement with your patients. You can't see them once every six months. Six months is a long time, especially as people age. Six months is a long time to go between engagements. So that's where technologies like remote patient monitoring, uh, our patient reported outcomes are really important for, especially in oncology and cancer care. You, you just can't go six months without having that level of engagement. And that's why we are investing in those kinds of technologies using wearable devices that are already out there and already on our wrist, for example, or technology that are already in our smartphones. Uh, in terms of, so we want to make sure that we don't add additional burden on the patients with these technologies, but ultimately you will add more burden on patients if you pursue a technology and you don't put the patient at the center of it. So when you design a technology that is supposed to improve efficiency at the practice level, at the, at the medical practice level, and you don't focus on the patient, then that's where your observation is correct. We are seeing technologies. In our case, we always put the patient at the center, patient first, provider second, at the center of everything we do um, in, in cancer care. But that said, um, there's another aspect of digitization that is really important that might add more burden, but that, is, but that second aspect is safety patient safety specifically, as you, when you have historically relied on paper forms, paper-based technology, there's a lot of stuff that is open for interpretation. So I mean, a good example I'll give you is uh, that clipboard I mentioned that, be, that a patient fills out, that clipboard takes on a life of its own. It goes from the person you hand that clipboard back to, to the person B, maybe the doctor, maybe the nurse, maybe Maybe the lab, everybody scribbles stuff on it and it makes it all the way back to the receptionist or the MA and then the MA types it all in. Well, people in the medical profession are not known for their eloquent handwriting, right? So imagine how, uh, what kind of errors and mistakes could be made when somebody was trying to interpret that paper. So using digital technologies, optical character recognition, et cetera, there's also a huge safety benefit of using those technologies, obviously, potentially it could add a bit more work as well on the patient side. Now, let's just take a, we've got a couple of questions, uh, but before that, just everybody, we're coming from different places. So if you have uh, customer experience insights from your own industry that could be relevant uh, in this case, bring them forward. 
Uh, with that, that, Rochelle, could you share just in a few sentences, you know, where you're coming from and uh, your question or comment? Yeah, Thanks. sure thing. Thank you. So a couple of things. I've worked extensively in oncology, uh, both at, you know with with my within my career professionally, but also personally uh, with my family. And um, I mean, a couple of things that you had mentioned about in your presentation, um, you know, looking at it from a brand, you know, trying to choose it and comparing it, let's say at a hotel stay, which is quite a, quite a, you know, a, a different co composition, but nevertheless, I mean, first of all, picking a medical oncologist, um, you know, you, you want somebody that's, you know, either you choose someone from a teaching hospital that has great clinical research experience, or they're, you know, they're, they're far removed from that. And they've got great, you know, customer relations, so to speak, with patient experience. So you you may choose a system, let's say a UC or what have you, because of that brand name of that oncologist, but that may not necessarily be where you go and get your radiation or chemotherapy. And then it's bringing all of that data together because let's say that UC system doesn't have the best technology and if you've got left-sided breast cancer um, with the new robust technologies that have come out in, in play in that regard. So then you've got to, you know, you've got to be able to compare and contrast, bring all that data together. So, you, so the physicians, but also yourself as a patient can see that holistically what's going on with your care um, versus having everything done at one system. Very rare is that happen because again, you're not just going to be, uh, unless you're not, unless you're not you know doing your own research and and knowledgeable of what's going on and what technologies are available to you um you may you may end up at one system but i would say if you're you're questioning that and you're looking at the newest and greatest robust technologies out there it may not be all at one system so it's integrating the data be able to to bring that to bear um but also being able to to really kind of take a step back and understand what's going on with yourself and being your best best advocate for some of these decisions and not leaving it up to just the physicians where physicians are God, so to speak, and really understanding yourself. Doing like that's why I still come back to doing your own research and understanding what your diagnosis is, what it means, and how to to really best you're not going to treat it, but to have some knowledge with that. Let's pause and uh you know, anybody can reflect, but Mass, why don't you start us off? That's quite interesting. No, I think I think Rochelle, you make a you make a great point. A couple of things, right? One, you're right. Uh, cancer is complex. You have your medical oncology, you have your radiation oncology, you have first, second, third, fourth line treatments. You have precision medicine. Uh, you can have clinical trials, so on and so forth. And there is no one system where everything is self-contained. Uh, but what we can do and what we should be doing is improve interoperability between all these systems. So when a patient, for example, comes into the medical oncologist and we, we do first-line treatment, let's say we move into second-line treatment at that same time, we should be able to see if there's a clinical trial out there that they're a good match for. And that's the vision. That's, that's at least how we're functioning. Uh, that said, complex uh, cancer given its complexity, uh, you're right in that the patients have to do their own research because in many cases, and I'll speak from my own experience, when uh, 
one of my family members was was diagnosed with prostate cancer. It was a really hard decision for us. Do we do radiation? Do we do surgery? Right? Uh, it's a really hard decision. The good thing is you have choices, right? The bad thing is the choices still require a lot of thought, thinking, analysis, research uh, to make those right choices. And that's why, if you remember the seven sort of the the the, the flower with the seven uh, things around it. Uh, patient education resource libraries are right there. We want to make sure that patients have access to to reputable materials to and education resources right there from day one. And I just want to make one other quick question to you. I, I, I know the clinical is a big piece of this, but have you also looked at the financial end of it? Because with different payment methodologies, some are on still fee for service, some are on value for outcomes. And obviously not that it's going to change the protocol or treatment plan given by a physician, but it's definitely going to change the way physicians are paid. And if they're not paid in accordance with the facility, uh, I mean, and that's a whole nother discussion, but I'm just wondering, in addition to the clinical outcomes, are you looking at the cost piece of it and how the docs are getting paid? We do. So there's, there's, there's actually two things to keep in mind. One, cancer treatment is extremely expensive. It is the single most expensive condition to treat in the U.S. So all, I always start everything from the patient's perspective, right? So from a patient's perspective, we have financial counselors and, and really anybody who's in this space should have financial counselors and financial counseling and, um, and resources available to patients uh, from day one. Second, from a provider's perspective, uh, I, and again, focusing on the patient, I'm a firm believer of value-based care. You shouldn't be, you should be compensated for the outcomes of the service you provide and not uh, the number or the, the number of visits that are, that are performed. I mean, again, going, going back to hospitality or um, a retail or hospitality, you walk in, you get some service and then you pay for that service, right? If you're happy, if you're not happy, you have a conversation about, hey, what went wrong, so and so forth. So value-based care is a really important space and value-based care is also, there are a number of technologies that you can implement to demonstrate value-based care. For example, remote patient monitoring. Right. So, uh, Afreen, would you mind uh, telling us who you are real quickly and your question? Sure. Thanks, John. Um, I'm Afreen Sharif. I'm actually an endocrinologist, so you all might be wondering what I'm doing here. Um, but my focus is actually managing endocrine side effects from cancer therapies, and that's what I've been doing. I'm a faculty at Duke um, and also the co-founder for a new health tech startup that is called Checkpoint Now that connects toxicity experts to cancer patients and to organizations like yourself. Um, so I come in from a very different perspective, right? Because for me, patient experience takes a new different meaning when it is dealing with side effects. So I'm really curious to understand um, from a network um, and policy perspective, what U.S. oncology is doing with regards to improving patient experience, patient education, with regards to side effect management in the incidence uh, setting and also in the long-term survivorship phase. Now, of course. Thank you, Afreen. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say the, the, the simplest thing, again, from a patient's perspective, is continuous engagement. So you have CCM, 
chronic care management, transition care management, uh, and so on and so forth. So we have, we want, we as technologists want to ensure that all of those programs are available to our providers to offer to their patients so that the patients have continuous engagement with their care, with their care team. So that we can, for example, when a patient gets their first chemotherapy and they leave, we want to make sure that the day after we call them or their care team call them, make sure that they're okay, make sure that they're, they don't have any adverse side effects and that there is an incentive for them to make that call to the patient and the patient has the incentive to accept that call as well. Um, sometimes the patient is not in a condition to accept the call, then you know what is on who whoever's available on the patient's care team, their family, et cetera, are available. So we want to make sure that we have all the technologies to enable those kinds of interactions. And that leads into then, again, remote patient monitoring technologies. So CCM, PCM, all these programs are still more traditional in the sense you pick up the phone, you call the patient, but you need to be able to transition to something like remote patient monitoring using variables, et cetera. Or, or adversely to patient reported outcomes, right? So if you think about um, a typical oncology, they'll see anywhere from 15 to 20 patients a day. And then if you're doing, let's say infusion, et cetera, or radiation, there's a lot of follow-ups for the care team. And those follow-ups can be complex and, and they require, and they can just be, just a checkbox, they have to be something that is meaningful to the patient, right? So just the technology to enable those follow-ups and make sure the follow-ups happen, make sure when somebody, when a care team member calls the patient, has the confirmation, has the conversation with the patient, documents the clinical notes, which are unstructured data, which then go back into your EMR, and then something has to take that unstructured data create some structure on it, do some analytics, tell the doctor, hey, this patient needs additional attention, that kind of stuff, right? Those are all the technologies that we and any modern uh, oncology care provider should be focused on. Great question, thank you. I have just a very quick follow-up question on this. Now I'm very outcome focused and I work in predictive modeling on figuring out who's gonna to get to the hospital from a side effect basically. Um, so my question for you is, have any of these technologies that you've implemented um, actually helped in reducing hardcore outcomes like hospital admissions or reducing mortality and morbidity in these patients or healthcare utilization? Yeah, so so there's something, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the suffering, but for the rest of the audience, there's something called OCM, oncology care model which is you have to be somebody who's really focused on uh, value-based care, right? Outcome-based care to participate in it. And all of the KPIs that you mentioned are part of OCM. So yes, you have to track, you have to track and say, yes, we have reduced ER visits, for example, and things like that as part of OCM, yes. So there is a very analytics heavy space, uh, but you're right, you're spot on. and and. And that's why not every organization participates in, in OCM or value-based care, because again, the, the dynamics are very different. It's, it's easier to be transactional, how many visits you make and charge per visit, but really, is that the right thing to do? I think is the question, right? If you're really focused on outcomes-based care. Right. You know, before I turn it over to Renee, you, on this journey, this complex journey, how do you prioritize? What do you work on first? 
Yeah, it's easy, John. So we prioritize patients first. We want to make sure that the patient experience is, um, that we continue to improve the patient experience. That's the number one priority. And right behind that priority is the provider experience. Cancer is a tough space. It's a tough business to be in. You're, you're uh, both mentally, psychologically, physically for care care teams. We want to make sure that everything we do, we 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 make it a little bit easier. I'm not gonna let you off that easy. So in, in the, the patient care, then how do you prioritize? I mean, we have, we've just, just touched so many things. So you have to visualize the patient's journey from diagnosis, right? All the way to remission. And what is the very first thing when somebody finds out that they have cancer? How do I make my first appointment? So one of the things we measure is time to first appointment. Can we can we can we shave off a day, two days, three days from that time to that first appointment? That's the first thing, right? And then you go into, uh, for example, in 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 oncology, there's a, a shift towards oral oncologics. So take oral medication, right, and radiotherapy, etc. So those things are maybe even in home infusion. The problem with things like that is adherence. You know, I mean, I forget to take my my little blood pressure medication three or four days in a row. And they're like, oh, shoot, I just forgot. Should I take four at a time? You can't do that, right? So adherence. So we we take the journey, the patient's journey, and we map out the experiences. It's like these are the experiences we're focused on. We're focusing on time to first. We're focused on oral adherence. Uh, maybe at some point we'll focus on short social determinants of health, right, and things like that. Um, I mean, you'll be surprised or maybe not, but there are a lot of patients who can't afford the transportation right. to for their, let's say, their infusion. So what do we do, right? Uh, do we integrate with Uber? Things like that. We're looking at all of these technologies, but again, it's just start. We, we started with day one and we're going to shifting towards the very end of the journey. Appreciate that. So, you know, folks, we've got a lot of folks uh, from product management uh, to lending, all different aspects of this journey. So, you know, feel free to pipe up and, and share, you know, your questions and, you know, how you're getting at it that could be helpful to Maz and his team. Meanwhile, Renee, would you mind sharing with what was on your mind? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm Renee Potter. I'm uh, the healthcare and life sciences business development lead at Equinix. And um, to make it short uh, for John, um, we are the world's largest digital infrastructure company. So we enable all this digital transformation in our 250 gl global uh, data centers around the world. So connecting the EHRs to the payers, to the providers, um, to, to getting your imagery, to, to training and inferencing all the AI models. Um, but what I wanted to share with, with the team is um, that you had mentioned the 2016 Cures Act. I uh, just wanted to bring to everyone's attention, both as a professional and uh, someone who personally obviously uh, goes to the doctors, um, starting next year, they are finally enacting um, everything that they have passed um, and translated down through the TEFCA agreement. So um, 
Next month, uh, they'll most likely be minimum three to five QNs, and that stands for Qualified Health Information Networks. They are basically going to be the digital uh, uh, on-ramps for healthcare data. And uh, so, you know, there was discussion about getting information back and forth quickly and easily. So a uh, provider, if you go to your provider and say, I need to get, you know, information from, you know, my previous provider who happened to be across the country in different healthcare system, for instance, uh, they, they, each provider will have their own QN and that QN will reach out to the other provider's QN, make the request and bring that information back down. Um, there is no SLA at this point on that, um, but it, it will be digital. And uh, secondly, in regards to information blocking, there is very um, few exclusions to that and can be up to million dollar fines. Um, and so they are really pushing this hard starting next year, although no one seems to know about it. Uh, the um, uh, CMS basically, uh, because it's an election year and they want a big win, they basically told all the providers, if you want reimbursement from us, you better choose the QNs. So, you know, whether it's going to be the care or the stick, people are going to have the QNs once they are announced. So I just wanted to share that with everyone, um, whether it's for your own personal use or for your professional uh, needs. And that's very much. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, there, there are two things um, that are really influencing this space. One, there are currently over 100 AHIEs or health information exchanges in the US and none of them talk to each other, which, which makes this really complex. So that's where the, the Cures Act has been uh, a powerful tool for, for those who really care about the patient experience to, to improve the patient experience. Uh, there is a provision in there called, specifically called G10, which went live, uh, was activated end of December uh, last 2022, which now obligates all EMR providers to make those G10 APIs available for um, for third parties to call and obtain patient data on request of the patient. And uh, you know, we certainly encourage every EMR provider to to comply with the law and and law or no, do the right thing for the patient. There was a question uh, in the chat that says, does your system facilitate second opinions and exchange of data and information to exchange, to enhance these experiences for the patient? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, you know, it goes back to the patient experience when somebody finds out that they have cancer and then somebody is told you have two or three options, they always wonder which is the right one. So there are, there are a couple of things that you can do there. One, there's obviously the tumor board function where a number of oncologists with different specializations get together and provide their opinion on what the right treatment pathway is. There are technologies that can um, that can enable that. Think of it as a Zoom, but specifically for oncology and uh, with, with obviously some sporting functions. Um, or beyond that, just second opinions. And again, technologies, interoperability between various systems where if you want to go to, let's say you're going to Health System X right now and you want to go to Health System Y for a second opinion, we want to make sure that 
your history and your data can be transferred over seamlessly to health system Y, and then similarly back to health system X with uh, without friction. And the way we do that is obviously our EMR, we, we in compliance with the law, we made sure that it was uh, our APIs were available uh, for anybody to consume. Then we also participate in the largest HIE in the US, which is called Care Quality. Uh, and we we process, I don't I don't have the data in front of me now, but hundreds of thousands of transactions a day in passing data back and forth between us and maybe it's a pharmacy, maybe it's a lab, maybe it's another, maybe the primary care provider, maybe, maybe somebody goes to an ER. I mean, this happens, right? A cancer patient will go to the EMR and they'll say, hey, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cancer patient and I'm not feeling well. We want the ER to be able to pull up the data immediately. That's a great pitch for our next show that's going to be on digital trust and cybersecurity. Thank you for that. But uh, any last questions from Az? We're kind of running up against the time, uh, but just feel free to speak out. That's exactly what this form is for. Yeah, so maybe a um, uh, little more information. I was interested on the G10 stuff. How does that relate to the fire stuff that's going on? All right, so um, so yeah. we, we orchestrate, I'm a, I'm a CTO at a company where we orchestrate the patient experience for clinical trials. And what we found is it's easy to get claim information, right, um, right now, but very hard to get provider supplied information. So I'm trying to solve this problem right now. Yeah. Uh, so Smart and Fire is still the predominant standard, right, in healthcare and prediction information. The GTN API specification, and you can look them up, are, are were published by CMS, and they are designed for the patients to be able to request their data and for the, the care provider to deliver that data within five days. Okay. The specifications are very similar. I can look them up, they're very similar specifications. Yeah, I'll definitely have to dig in. Thanks. Anybody else? Maz, any uh, final thoughts as we close this session down? Um, Hang on. We have uh, Florence Hudson. Florence. Hey there, y'all. Um, so nice to meet you. Thank you for the discussion and thank you, Maz, for the content, very serious content, as you mentioned, but that's why we're here to fix problems that matter, right? So um, I wanted to mention one thing, and Brian, based on you, we're just talking about with clinical trials. So in, uh, in John's next session, I'll be talking about a new uh, standard that I'm leading the development of with IEEE, you know, the Institute for Electronic Engineers and UL Underwriters Laboratories. And it's called Clinical Internet of Things Data and Device Interoperability with TIPS. And TIPS stands for Trust, Identity, Privacy, Protection, Safety, and Security. All the things that can go wrong in connected healthcare um, and technical and process standards related to that. But interestingly, we just had a, a decentralized digital clinical trials forum hosted by IEEE in Boston. And so we're thinking of creating, we're planning <laughs> to create a new um, study group about this TIPS framework for decentralized clinical trials. And after listening to you, I'm thinking yeah, we might have to you. In. <laughs> yeah. Now you went, okay, great. <laughs> and John, you said we'll get their contact information? Absolutely. 
Okay, I'll put mine in here just in case there's a little blip. Um, there's there are no blips. No blips with technology, are there? Oh, I just so, had you, you know, tell me. Oh, I'd <laughs> love to hear more and partner up as well. I mean, I'll give you an example. In oncology, we rely very heavily on infusion pumps. Right. Many of those infusion pumps are not integrated with the pharmacy management system or the EMR. So a lot of the dosage is done manually. And as you know, dosage is dependent on patient's weight, for example, and, and, and other uh, metrics, right? So imagine integration when a patient walks in and they get on the scale, the scale feeds data to the EMR, the EMR then did, gets data from the pharmacy management system, figures out the right dosage, and then feeds it automatically into the, the infusion pump. That's the kind of workflow that we want to design. You know, it, it's uh, it's uh, it's the patient patient safety issue. It's also an efficiency issue. Absolutely, and a privacy issue with the data because everything is hackable. Right. Yeah, and so if you can join the session, I think it's in December at twelfth, same time, same station, <laughs> and um, I'll show you one of the use cases is actually you know an insulin pump. You know, Caroline is a runner and she has her, you know, insulin pump on. And we I can show you like quickly the um the list of process steps we have in there. You know, then the happy path we call it when things go well, and then the other path. You know, and so what do you need to do to put in the technology to have all those checks and balances and try to maintain the trust and identity of the devices, the humans, privacy protection? There's a lot to do. So our goal with this standard is to get the first one out the door. And it'll be our, our vision is 802.11 is our role model in case anyone's geeky enough to know that, you know, like the Wi-Fi standard that was created years ago. And now there are all these forks and everything. It's like a happy blockchain, you know, and it goes in these different directions. That's our goal with this is to create the base standard and then to continue to improve it. Like, you know, tips for clinical IoT, now clinical trials, then cars, then grids. Don't give any more away. You have to come on December 12th. Well, I'm not going to talk uh, well, about this. They have to come to ask me questions. A couple of things uh, as we close this down is uh, Karen Knoop from Harvard. She's like, what a great show. But if we could get doctors to use the systems instead of taking patient histories all over again, all over again, right? And then um, we also have another question, like how could we actually use the technology to improve the experience? Are we Are we prioritizing what's right? So with that, how was the expert talk and discussion today? If you kindly go ahead and complete the show survey on your screen and let us know. Uh, in today's post-show notes, we'll hit your mailbox really soon with the slide deck, any resource links that uh, McKeeson's going to provide, and of course, the contact information for everybody here that uh, came in here. Next up on From the Experts, Florence. You know, is digital trust and cybersecurity important for your business? Well, just come. You've just heard enough and how she's going to talk about how they're protecting, uh, you know, people, IP and brand. So with over 2,400 members and 20,000 followers across 25 industries, the FT network is growing fast thanks to you guys. Please check out our library of expert content and never miss a show by subscribing to our YouTube, Apple, Spotify channels. Find out how you can grow your business with FTE Plus and register for more shows just like this one on our website, FTE.network. Folks, we're out of time. Thank you once again, Maz, and everybody from the experts. We'll see you December 12th. Thank you.